You can have a seat. Hopefully, I'm uh, giving you uh, the third or fourth welcome this morning to the Capitol Church. If you're here regularly, you may notice that there are uh, certain people that are normally here on Sunday that aren't here this Sunday, or maybe you've been here enough to say, I'm not sure who the people are that are missing, but there seems to be a large group of people missing. Uh, and that is because today, uh, this weekend, Friday night and Saturday and Sunday, was the SALT National Conference. If you're new to our church, we're part of a network of churches um, that uh, plants churches in uh, major university contexts, and part of our church is a college ministry, and all those college ministries get together once a year, and uh, there are 4,700 college students out in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, this weekend. I had the opportunity to be out there. Uh, I was there on Friday, Saturday morning and came out. And one of the cool things too is, as you can tell, we have uh, two of our key people are there. Uh, Luke, our lead pastor, was uh, had the privilege of preaching on Friday night there. Kyle, who uh, is uh, heads up our worship here as one of our pastors, he's also out there. And uh, it's uh, amazing. I have people ask me about it, and I've just gotten to the point where I don't try to explain what it's like to be in a place with 4,700 college kids. Uh, I had fun uh, sitting right in with the Ohio State students. Uh, that was super fun for me, and um, it, it's great to be there. We are a church, as you know, if you've been around, one of our values that we put in our uh, for our church's next generation, that we believe that university campuses are a strategic place for gospel ministry, and that those God uses those college kids all over the world. So uh, that's exciting for us to be a part of that. If I were to name some brands to you, like if I were to say Toyota or Honda, or maybe for some of you, uh, if I were to say Trek or Giant, some of you, if you're my age, might think Beanstalk, not exactly. Um, what would you think? Those are actually, uh, I read a study this week where uh, they listed a bunch of items and they listed the company, the brands that are known for quality in certain areas. So like for cars, it was Toyota and Honda. For bikes, it was uh, Giant and Trek. Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily true. That's just what people are saying. Uh, shoes, L.L. Bean and Rainbow Sandals. I don't even know what Rainbow Sandals are. Uh, outerwear, this one I did know, Patagonia and Eddie Bauer. I would have voted for one of those, but not a, a different one. They even had the computers, and so they said, okay, this brand is the known to be the most reliable uh, for 14 inches and down, and this one is uh, a different one was for 14 inches and above. And uh, you could go through to, to tools and luggage and appliances. Bonnie and I are the type of people that we go to places to buy something and we ask the people there, which one of these would you buy? What's, what's the one 
that you would uh, do that. I was actually at a dealership in town to get uh, some work done on my car, and I said to one of the service guys, I said, listen, um, can I ask you a personal question? And he kind of looked at me like, I think it's the first time any person uh, in the service area was asked if he could be asked a personal question. <laughs> I said, here's my story. I said, I've left, lived for the past 20 years in the same uh, place in Pennsylvania. And over that year, I've, I bought 20 uh, cars of this brand. And I said, I've had the same salesperson for all 20 years. My kids have all bought cars from that same salesperson and numbers of people. And all of a sudden, I move here to uh, Ohio, and I don't know a soul in this dealership. The question is, if you were going to buy a car, who's the guy inside there that you would say to me, that's the guy you want to work with? And ironically, what he said to me was, he said, I'm going to give you the name that everybody in this shop would give you. And uh, so obviously, that's uh, the guy when I'm ready, I'm going to call. What has occurred to me recently is uh, if I went around Columbus and asked the people in your world what you were known for, what do you think they would say? Like if I talk to your coworkers, your neighbors, maybe people in your dorm at school, your relatives, your friend group, what would they tell me that you're known for? I did some, actually did some research this week to try to find out if, I, if there's actually studies as to what the followers of Jesus are actually known for, and what I found, quite honestly, was pretty disappointing. Gandhi, which I had heard this before, Gandhi once said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I found a survey where they studied people and they asked them, what are the, the top things that followers of Jesus do that, that you don't like, that really tick you off? And here's the three. The first two didn't surprise me. The third one I'd never heard before. They said, number one is they judge people. Number two is they're hypocritical. And number three was they stink at friendship. And I thought, that is really fascinating. And when I talked to people, it was basically, uh, as I researched it a little bit more, why people said that, it was basically sort of this thing that we uh, also find a lot in our culture, that we can only be friends with people who agree with everything we agree with and do everything that we do. We have a hard time building friendships with people when we come to an impasse where we have a different value system or a different political position or whatever. One of the ones that I found that was really interesting, they were a survey was asked to characterize the opinions of followers of Jesus, whether they had a negative opinion or a positive opinion, and 30% of the people said they had a very or somewhat positive opinion. I don't know if they wanted to make it look good, so they put all the somewhats into the 30% or not, but even that to me was... Uh, was not fun for me as a follower of Jesus. 
I've been thinking about it because if you've been here, you know that we just started a couple of weeks ago. This is actually uh, message number three of a sermon series on the book of Acts. And what we're doing is we're sort of uh, walking through the book of Acts over the next couple of months, a uh, book in the Bible, Acts, that sort of looks at, okay, what was it that happened and what was it that caused this movement to just take off and, and literally change the world? And that's what has really intrigued me because I, I know, and if you're familiar with history at all, you know that historically what we know to be true is that people who last week were at the message, Luke talked from Acts chapter 2 and talked about Peter's message where right after the crucifixion, he said to people, in essence, that, that the people that were there, he said, you're the ones, it was a result of you and your sin, you the one that killed Jesus, and they all were stricken and said, what do we need to do? And he said, you need to repent of your sins, you need to ask for the forgiveness that God is offering in the death of Jesus and his resurrection provided for you, and you need to enter in and become a follower of Jesus. And what we know is that what happened with that initial group of people literally transformed the world. I read this fall a fascinating book. It's written by a man who is not a believer. He's not a follower of Jesus. In fact, if anything, he, most of his writings is critical of followers of Jesus. But what so intrigued him was trying to figure out how it is that this movement even started, trying to figure out how you can take 20 basically illiterate day laborers that are living in a remote part of the Roman Empire that eventually grows to become the official religion of Rome and converts over 30 million people in four centuries. How does that happen? Especially when their leader is murdered. And somehow, something happened that changed the world. In fact, here's one of the things, questions he asked in the beginning of his book. He said, how did Christianity become the single most important cultural transformation our world has ever seen? One that revolutionized art, music, literature, philosophy, ethics, economics, healthcare, and law. And what he does is go through how the ethic that Jesus brought to the world transformed everything in our culture. And what he's saying is, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not a believer. But what I can tell you is, something happened. And it totally transformed the world. And to me, it begs the question... What was it that became true of those people that somehow they became, became the kind of people that the message of Jesus became uh, compelling to other people? They, they saw something in these people that drew them first to become interested in what it was that they believed, what it was that so grabbed a hold of them that, that transformed them. Because it would help us, for instance, in our world, me and my world, you and your world, us as a church, that if in fact who Jesus is and what he's done for people is so compelling to me and has so transformed my life that it would be natural for me to want people in my world, people I love, to experience that. We do that in all kinds of other areas, right? 
if you have found an exercise program, if you've found a budget tool, if you've found something that radically alters and changes your life, it's natural for you to want others to be brought into that. And the reality is, even if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, what you're going to hear today is what would be necessary for you and needs to be true of you if people are going to be drawn to what it is that is important to you. Now, if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to be reading two passages of Scripture. One is at the uh, end of chapter 2 of Acts, so if you want to follow along with me, uh, you can turn and uh, if you have a hard copy or your uh, device, if you're not and you just want to listen, that's fine because I'm going to read them. I'm going to read the end of the chapter, chapter 2. So this is a description of what's happened right after the message we looked at. And then I'm going to read uh, the end of uh, some verses at the end of chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to start reading verses thir 32 through 37. And then what I'm going to do is I want to read it to you. And then I want to make some observations about what we see there. All right? So first, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Here's what, it, here's what we read. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together in the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved." Now, here's another description we get about these people at the end of Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Here's what it says. It says, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Now, here's some observations I want to make. First of all, what wasn't they were known for? And first, what they were known for was what they were devoted to. They became, once they became a follower of Jesus, once they recognized what Jesus had done for people and had done for them, they became devoted people. Now, before I give you the two things that I see here that they were devoted to, let me talk to you about the word devoted because it's a very interesting word. You understand, uh, having gone in school, that vocabulary is really important at times. And a vocabulary word and a definition can change the meaning of everything. It becomes really important, too, because uh, like in my era, there are certain words that meant one thing when I was in high school that means something completely different. I realized generational vocabulary terms changed one time when I called my brother something and my mother 
went absolutely crazy because what I just called my brother meant something very different when she was younger than it did today. The word that we have here called devoted is a word that means that it's, it's, it's a spirit or an attitude where you're constantly persistent, you're holding fast, you're not letting go, you're not giving up. It's something that is going to take a great deal of effort for it to happen. We all have different levels of commitment. And this is a word that when we read it and see it, in much of the New Testament writings, it is a word that comes along, and, and what the writer is trying to say to us that I'm asking you to do something, but I want you to understand that this is not something that's gonna become very easy for you. It's something that you're going to have to engage in and become very committed to. The point is that he's making using that word is that this is going to take determination and effort and you need to be somebody who is just not sort of, uh, okay, I'll give it a try. This is something that these people, what he's trying to say was, it wasn't easy for them to do. It wasn't a spur of the moment decision. It was something that they grabbed a hold of and they dug themselves in knowing this was gonna be something that was gonna have to be, they were gonna have to work at it and recommit to it all the time. And here's the first one, is that they were devoted to becoming like Jesus. They were devoted to becoming like Jesus. It wasn't simply about devoted to learn certain things, not that they weren't committed to that, but what they did is they wanted to understand and know who Jesus was and how he reacted so that they could become like him. And so, what did that mean? It meant that they were committed to church. It says all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It says the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. These were people who wanted to know what Jesus said. They wanted to know what Jesus did. They wanted to understand that, so they listened carefully, whether it was when it was being taught or then committed to reading it in the scriptures. They wanted to know what, it, what, what Jesus was like so that they could become like him. In fact, Jesus, when he left the earth in his final commandment, said to his closest friends and followers, this is one of the points he made, is he's saying, uh, he gives him, some of you, if you've been around church, know about the Great Commission, and one of the things he talks about is teach them to obey, meaning what he's saying is, I don't want you to just teach them information, I want you to be committed to help people see information in light of helping them become more and more like Jesus. It was about becoming like him. They would have read another place in the New Testament. This came in a letter to the follower of Jesus. And this is what it said to them and challenged them. He says, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all and also believe that we have all died to our old self, he died for everyone so that those who receive this new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised from them. There's a transformation that happens where it's suddenly not about me and what I want. There's a radical perspective change to these people and suddenly it became about a different priority and for them was that they wanted to be like Jesus, so they were not only committed to the teaching and learning, but they were actually committed to being in church. 
Again, without this sounding too much like an English lesson, one of the things that the writer, one of Jesus' followers, Luke, who wrote this, doesn't just say that all the believers uh, committed themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That would make it seem like what they did was they were devoted to just being with each other. But there's actually a definite article before the word fellowship that's not in all of the translation, but trust me, it's there. And what he's trying to say is that they were not just committed to the teaching of the apostles, but they were committed to the fellowship. What he's saying is that when those people got together and the teaching was going to be done, they were committed to be there to hear it, to listen to it. We, we also read in those two passages I gave you, it says all the believers met together in one place. They worshiped together at the temple. It was important for them that there was a time that they came together as fellow followers of Jesus to learn about what it meant, to encourage each other, to help each other. And because they were so committed to become like Jesus, were devoted to become like Jesus. They were not only committed to teaching, they were not only committed to being in church, but we learned from all this that they were also committed to prayer. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. And we're gonna see as we walk through this book together over the next few months that these were people who really were devoted to prayer. Like Jesus, you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus is constantly, we're seeing that he was constantly committed to prayer. He would get up before anybody else got up to go away and pray. And as we read through the book of Acts, we're going to see that these people prayed to become like Jesus. They prayed for deliverance. They prayed for healing. They prayed for peace and guidance. They prayed for the love of other people. They just desperately wanted to be like the one who had saved them. It's one of the reasons why, again, if you were to look on our website and we list our values, one of our values is called becoming. And here's what we say there. It says, we believe that the pathway to a flourishing life is becoming more like Jesus. So we value the process of spiritual development. And it changes everything. Because the Bible tells us in every area of our life, me as a husband, Jesus is my model. A wife, Jesus is your model. A worker, Jesus is your model. Neighboring, Jesus is your model. Jesus is your model for everything. And these people understood that and they knew the only way I'm going to become more and more like Jesus is I actually have to figure out and learn more and more what Jesus is like. But here's the second thing they were devoted to. They were devoted to not only becoming like Jesus, but they were devoted to people. First, we realized that they were devoted to other fellow followers of Jesus. We read things in that section like all the believers shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions. They shared their money. They were unified in heart. In fact, Jesus, when he was talking to his closest friends and followers, literally said... This is how people are going to be able to know that the message of who Jesus is and what he does is actually true is by looking at the ability of followers of Jesus and their unity and love for each other. That's what will draw people to that. 
I mean, you've probably experienced sometime in your life something similar, even in a non-Christian world. Maybe you went to, when you were in school, you were around some kids, and there just seemed to be some family dynamic that was unique to you. One of my, one of my best friends grew up in a, uh, um, just a dysfunctional single-parent home, a lot of conflict, all kinds of stuff. And I was talking to him one day, and I said, when, when was it that you sort of thought to yourself that uh, there are different kinds of families in the world and started to see your family background at something? And what it was was a family in his neighborhood that he always hung around with one of those kids, and it drew him to things that were true of that family. And he's a great father. And one of the reasons is because he saw something that drew him. But not only were they devoted to each other, not only were they committed to each other, but they were also committed to non-followers of Jesus. It says, There were no needy people among them because those who owned land and houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to people that were in need, not just believers, people that were in need. You see, these were not a group of people who isolated themselves from the world. It was not like a group of people who like all moved in the same neighborhood and just stayed away from people. These were people who sought to serve and love the people in their neighborhoods, their workplaces, wherever they did life. In fact, that's one of the things in the book that says what spread this was not what was taking place in their gatherings. It was like they were in their worlds and they were talking about and acting and loving people and serving people and people were drawn to that and saying, what is it about you that makes you care so much? Listen to some of the things he talks about in his book. He said, while the Roman Empire was extremely diverse, its inhabitants shared one basic assumption. If one word could encapsulate the common social, political, and personal ethic of the time, this is the time when Jesus came into the world, he writes, it would be dominance. He said, in a culture of dominance, those with power are expected to assert their will over those who are weak. Rulers are to dominate their subjects. Patrons are to dominate their clients. Masters are to dominate their slaves. Men are to dominate their women. Sound like anything you're familiar with in culture? But he says, but the leaders of the Christian church preached and urged an ethic of love and service. One person was not more important than another. All were on the same footing before God. The master was no more significant than the slave. The patron, no more than the client. The husband, no more than the wife. The powerful, no more than the weak. The robust, no more than the diseased. And these people recognized that Jesus died on the cross and loved them and entered into their worlds to meet them, and therefore all people had intrinsic value. All people were worth effort. In fact, in Jesus' final moments, his final moments with his closest friends and followers, some of you have maybe heard what's called the golden rule. Sometimes people think that's the Christian rule. You know, love others as you would have them love you. But that isn't what Jesus did before he left. He said, a new commandment I give to you. 
And here's what it was. Love each other just as I have loved you. See, that changes everything. When I realized that I, an undeserving person, and for me, uh, awkward, unpopular, had a physical condition that at that time I wasn't allowed to participate in any kind of athletics, is when the story of who Jesus was and what he did, it was so overwhelming to me that God could love me, this acne-faced junior high kid sitting in gym class, begging God to please not let me be picked on the shirts, uh, skins team today. Everybody can see that my acne wasn't just on my face, it was all other places. Changed my life. I remember the image I had in my mind, it was like that gym class where two guys are picking and maybe you've been the guy who, you know, at the end of everybody picking, there's still one kid and it's sort of like they're trying to make a deal of who's going to get him and then whoever gets him, if they're playing softball, they put him, hey, we got a great important position, you need to back up the right fielder. In case anything gets by the right fielder, you can be back there. And the image for me was Jesus walked into gym class, he gets to pick first and he says, I'll take the acne-faced skinny kid without a shirt on you right there, I want you. And what he's saying is with these people, what so transformed them was to think that a God could love them so deeply and far from that making them arrogant and judgmental and hypocritical and stink at relationships, it motivated them to realize that I'm no more special than anybody else and if a God could love me that way, then, he could, then I need to do that for other people. Which is again why we have one of our values in our church's neighboring, which says we believe that all people are made by God and loved by God. So we leverage, so we value leveraging our lives for the good of people in our neighborhoods, workplaces, and whatever we do in life, live life. And think about the results. All of a sudden, there's these 20 or so illiterate day laborers, as the author puts it, who suddenly become fully devoted and they just want to be like Jesus in every way. And because they want to be like Jesus, they realize they need to love people and serve people and care about people. It says that the message of the Jesus became very compelling and, and the, we read in those verses that they were enjoying the goodwill of all the people and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. It was the same way with Jesus. People flocked to him. He wasn't known for being judgmental. He wasn't known for being hypocritical. Even Gandhi, who didn't believe the message of Jesus, was still compelled by the man and the ethnic that controlled him. What struck me this week is Jesus was not known for his social convictions, his political convictions, or his religious convictions. He was known for his love, for his empathy and compassion for people. And the message of Jesus became so powerful because of what was true of the people who claimed to believe it. The people whose lives had changed. One of the things that's critical, he's critical of Christianity in the book is he tries to make the argument that really Christianity flourished 
among the illiterate and nobody people of the world. I read it and think, I think that's kind of the point. Is that it was these people who society tended to throw away that were so moving. And the witness and the power to the resurrection of Jesus was what was involved in the people's lives and demonstrated by this. But beyond, beyond that, the second thing that happened as a result of this is the world was forever changed for the good. In fact, that's the, one of the things in this book that's so overwhelming. Here's what he says. He says, the ethical reversal based on Jesus' words and actions made Christianity especially attractive to women in the ancient world and formed the basis of our modern belief that women are fundamentally equal to God, I mean to men. Far from being uh, anti-ethical to women's rights, Christianity was the first and best foundation. In the first two millennia, Christianity had gone from being a faith of a tiny minority to the most widespread, radically, culturally, racially diverse belief system in the world. It was the ethic of Jesus that led to health care. It was the ethic of Jesus that led to the creation of charities. It was the ethic of Jesus that led to education being available to all people. And he says, while these people were devoted to something that even though, again, him, he doesn't believe in the message, he's fairly critical of it. But what he can't deny is that something happened in his followers. And it made his message not just be about something in the future, but about just making the world. That's why in our neighboring thing, we talk about, I, I need to be a person, and in my, my neighborhood is better because I am there. My workplace is better because I'm there. And it's not about whether people become followers of Jesus or adopt my belief system or come to my church or whatever. It's just about those are people. Everybody in my neighborhood has intrinsic value and I need to love them and serve them and care for them just because they're people. Imagine what would be true of our world if we had people who were literally devoted to those kinds of things. And again, it's why we say again that we believe that all people are made by God and loved by God, so we value leveraging our lives for the good of people in our neighborhoods, workplaces, and whatever we do life. So let's go back to what, where we started. What are you known for? People in your world say, well, you know, there's a lot of things about that person, but man, whatever's going on in their world, they sure are devoted to Jesus, they are sure devoted to making sure that they're doing the kinds of things he did, and they sure are devoted to people. They just love the people here. They serve the people here. They care about the people here. I've been challenged again this week in my own thoughts to examine, and it's always intriguing to me that when I'm going to preach on something, I've always wondered why, you know, it's easy for me to think that God's given me this because of what you all need to hear. And then years ago, I realized that, wait a minute, God's making me go over this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. 
One of the areas of my life that's changed a lot over the last year, the more I've come to understand more and more what it means to be, to be like Jesus is, is the husband I need to be with Bonnie. In fact, I started a couple years ago changing my apologies to say to her, I'm sorry that I talked to you like that. Jesus would never talk to his wife with that tone. Jesus would never use those words. He's called me to love and serve you like he would. What is our church known for? What will our church be known for? We'll be known for people who are devoted. It reminded me years ago, I was on the coaching staff of the university, and we had an away game, and we drove out early on a Friday to try to beat a storm, and we stayed all night. We played the game Saturday afternoon, and the storm was such that we weren't able to get back. So Sunday morning, I got up and um, went out to the area where they served breakfast and just had my journal and was doing some reading. And uh, I came, the head coach eventually came out and sat down next to me, and we were just drinking coffee and chit-chatting a bit. And he said, hey, man, I'm, I'm really sorry. And I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, I'm really sorry that we're here on a Sunday. I know uh, how important that is to you. And as he described it, I realized that he thought that Sunday morning church was important to me out of some kind of rule and regulation thing. Like somehow I'm going to be in trouble now because I wasn't in church. And I said to him, I said, no. I said, that's not what it is. I said, you know how... I don't know, maybe your mother or a cousin's got a birthday and when the family gets together, it's just so awesome and you just want to be there. There's no rule that says I got to be at somebody's house for something. You just want to be there. And I said, well, my friends and buddies and everything get together on Sunday morning and I just miss being there with them. Not no lightning bolt, it's nothing. I, I just love being there and being a part of that. And may we become one of those church. That whether people are followers of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus, they would feel welcome, that they would feel loved, that they would feel appreciated. May we be, may we be a church in this community that is known for people who loves other people and serves other people and cares for other people. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for the work in my own heart this week. The way that you've revealed to me again that uh, there's no reason why the God of the universe would look down in his created world, to look down into the North American continent, to look down on the United States of, the, of North America and look down into the state of New York and look down into my little tiny Adirondack town. And be aware that there was a junior high boy whose name was Dwight. And to reveal to my heart that you loved me so much that you died on the cross to save me for my sins. But even more than that, you then invited me to be a part of the mission that you had. And then giving to my young heart then this desire to know everything I could know about this person, this Savior. And giving me a desire to try to be more and more and more and more like him. But also 
changing the way I viewed the people around me and causing me to love people and want to serve people and want to be engaged with people. And thank you for this week, for the opportunity to revisit all this and remember all those things and, and, and find ways that I need to do better. Find ways that I need to be more committed to even that which will help me know who you are and, and study all that more, and, but also ways that I need to love people more the person I'm married to, the person, the people that are my family, but also those in my world. Help me to love people and help us to be a church that's known for those things as well. In Jesus' name, amen.